The biggest reason I'm a teacher and now a head teacher is I want every child to know that they can succeed and I want us all to do everything that we can to allow them to do that. What's your supply budget look like? We've never used a supply teacher. And I can remember sitting in the class every, every day just being frightened that I would be picked to read. We're joined today by Phil Brook, inner city head teacher, breaking the mold and overcoming barriers. I arrived at your school on a cold November morning at the same time as many of the children. And the first thing that struck me was the sense of joy around the building. And it made me wonder, do you have a mantra or something that inspires you uh, when you're creating this joy around school? Um, I think, yeah, I think it's really important that the children come in uh, and are happy and are cared for. Um, and also the same for the staff. So what we want for the children, we want the same for the staff as well. And the easiest way for me to think about it is I, I have two young girls myself, uh, Eleanor and Hattie, um, and they go to primary school. When they get dropped off in the morning, the most important thing to me is that they're cared for and they're happy when they're at their school. And um, hundreds of parents do the same and drop their children off at our school each morning. And they want the children to come in with a smile on the face and they want them to leave with a smile on the face. So that uh, feeling of happiness and being cared for is probably what it's all about, isn't it? You know, and that's what we want. And if the whole school shares that culture and ethos, then it, it's a nice place to be. And I'm glad I'm glad you felt welcomed, you know, when, when you came. That's important. Yeah, there, I'm very lucky in my job that I get to visit many schools. And often I'll go and I'll see um, quotes of Gandhi on the wall. Yeah. But the school doesn't have that feeling. It doesn't have the warmth. So yeah, that was, it was a really nice at Alexandra Park. They, they are, we, we, they are lovely children. They, they are, they absolutely <laughs> are. You know, um, so if I, if I walk along the corridor, um, they will ask me how I'm doing about my day. You know, uh, there's a real nice feel, and they're, they're polite, they're friendly. Yeah, they're fantastic children, and I think you know, like when that happens, everyone buys into that, and the, the staff treat them with respect, and uh, we're as polite to them as we want them to be to us. So all, all of that kind of escalates, doesn't it? And just creates a nice feel. And what you say, people do comment when, when they come in. And uh, if we take them on a trip, they'll always say how polite and friendly the children are. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a culture of care and, a, and one where we foster really positive relationships with the children and that makes them feel happy and, and works for everyone, I think. But thank you. You're welcome, you're welcome. I, I certainly feel... When I started my, my career as a primary school teacher, there was two sides to the to the job. One was I need to teach these children how to read, write and do maths and other foundation subjects. But bigger than that was my job as a primary school teacher is to create lovely little human beings yeah, who yeah. can function in society, who understand, who are empathetic and considerate. And I feel sometimes that that's missed in our education system because of external pressures probably but that was always at the heart of what I did was that's the number one important thing we, we want them we want them to be caring people we want them to care for themselves each other the world that they live in that that's really important um, I absolutely agree they need to have an understanding of maths and English and be strong in those areas they will allow them you know like to be successful but more than that, they have to be good citizens and the foundations that we give them at primary school really allow them to do that. So I know um, we had the year six leavers assembly um, at the end you know, and when I looked out at the children, 
um, I could look at them and, and I knew we'd done everything that we can to help them. And I, I was really, genuinely very proud of every single one of those children. And that, when I'm thinking about how proud I am, it, it's not the results that they got at the end. It's that they're, they're fantastic people and that that's what we want. Um, and I know that they will go on and be the best versions of themselves. So, um, yeah, you asked... Um, about a, a quote and I went away and I thought about it and I do use quotes a lot in training and things but uh, there's one that stands out and it's more of a you know a TED talk um, I saw a TED talk by uh, Rita Pearson and um, she talks about every child needing a champion and uh, that stuck with me um, and I've used that video lots and I've, I must have seen it dozens and dozens of times you know like uh, if she ever tracked back the history I think I'm probably the person who's seen that video the most and she thought <laughs> it's about every child needing a champion and that that person who's going to inspire the children and not just want them to be succeed, succeed but to do everything they possibly can and not accept them not succeeding and succeeding in all areas of life so when she talks about this I think you know like as a teacher I I do like to think I did everything I can to inspire the children and know that they were happy. And then um, when I made the decision to become a head teacher, um, I thought about it a little bit more. Uh, I've got a great opportunity so that, you know, when the children look back, it, it's not just that one champion teacher, you know, like you can fill a school full of them, you know, like you can fill a school where every teacher and every teaching assistant, everyone working in the office is that inspirational person for the children. And that's what we set out to do. So on my first inset, um, that's the video I showed uh, at the start of every year. I show that video. If I recruit new teachers, I show that video and I talk about it and say, it's quite clear what I want. I want champion teachers, you know, that inspire the children and every single person is is on this on the same you know like the same path to do that and that's what we do and when um i look back at that video so i think i must have been looking at it for maybe six or seven years and then when i look at the teachers that we have at our school and the teaching assistants we have at the school they are every bit as good as she is you know and that's that's amazing for the children isn't mm. it it really does give them every chance that they possibly can you know like of succeeding and, and also not just for the children in it if you're um if you're a teacher and a teaching assistant and you're part of that and you know how much difference you're making that's a great place to be isn't mm -hmm. it you know like um there's lots of different things you can do for motivation but actually knowing that you are making a bigger big big difference to children's lives there, there's got to be no greater motivation from that and yeah i, I work at a school where every member buys into that and that that's going back to what you said at the beginning that's why it feels like it does so, yeah, mm. great. Uh, it feels like a school that i would love to work at where i have my ethos of i'm trying to create lovely little human beings and like you say I, that's being noticed mm -hmm. and rewarded mm -hmm. and you're not just doing maths from nine till ten and english from quarter past ten to quarter past eleven but there's there's a bigger picture and, and that's reflecting the school that, that's really nice it it made me think i wonder if these are reflections from Phil's experience of school at primary school, did you, was that a, a loving, caring environment? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, I think I enjoyed primary school. You know, uh, there was lo lots of aspects. I enjoyed you know, like making friends there, which I think is a big part of primary school and, and a big part of um, it for our children as well. So my, my friends that I see at the weekend are still my friends now, are friends that I met at school. So I do think that's a big part of it. Um, but the other aspect of it is um, I struggled at primary school. Um, okay. So um, I remember um, 
I've certain things I'll find challenging. So I didn't used to talk talk about this until I'd advanced my career to a stage where I felt comfortable. So um, I'm dyslexic. I'm, I'm very dyslexic. Um, I struggle to read, and even now I struggle to read out loud. So this is why I can do this as a talk rather than have notes because I won't be able to read the notes and do it at the same time. So if you're at school and you find things different uh, and difficult, such as reading and remembering facts, it it's not actually a nice place to be, you know, it's challenging. Mm. And um, as a competitive boy, you know, like um, like so many, if we're not good at something, you know, like sometimes the easiest thing to do is not enter, you know, like so mm-hmm. um, I didn't do well at, uh, at primary school. And then by the time it came to high school, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd switched off learning. Um, I liked my PE lessons, you know, mm-hmm. like I liked my art lessons. Uh, and, and actually I was, I was okay at maths, but English, you know, um, I, I couldn't read well. I couldn't, I couldn't write well, you know, and um, it actually takes a certain sort of mindset, doesn't it, to keep working hard at something you're not good at. And um, I don't think I'm the only person that stops. So trying to inspire children to do that so that they believe they can still, you know, like succeed later on, um, even though they might find things different and difficult to start with. What, what did that look like for you then at primary school? How did you feel? Because a lot of the curriculum is centered around reading. Yeah. And what were your coping strategies? You talked about stopping and not wanting to take part. What did that manifest itself as? Yeah, the, the best example, and I'll come to why it's so important to me now, but the best example I can give is in, it was a high school one, in, in our English lesson, we, we used to have a book uh, and we used to read the book in class. One person mm-hmm. would read it. And it was a uh, Lord of the Flies, and I can remember sitting in the class at, at high school every every day, just being frightened. You know that, mm. that I would be picked to read, and um, obviously, you know, like the teacher knew I wasn't good at it, so you know, like she didn't pick me. But when she did, you know, like she said, "Well, I uh, read um, a paragraph," and I really struggled. And I remember saying, uh, "That's more. That's that's enough. There, thank you." And then she said, "Actually, that's more more than enough." You know, and. Uh, I think I was about 13 then, um, and I don't think I read another book for another 10 years, you know, and and that sort of thing goes against everything I believe, you know, and perhaps why I'm a teacher, and it's not because I have a love of a a specific subject, it's that I don't want children to have that experience, um, and I want them to have the complete opposite experience, that actually if they find something challenging, you know, like we put more support in place because... Um, I wasn't stupid. I, I just found certain things difficult, you know, And but primary school and the learning of knowledge and the basic things you have to do doesn't lend itself to that. Whereas, um, yeah, the, the basics I struggle with. But as I became older, I, I realised that I could do certain things, but you don't have the foundations. But often you've gone you know like you've gone through school and you, you've given in before then haven't you so you mm. never get an opportunity to, to realize that you actually can do more um so i think the reason well the biggest reason i'm a teacher and, and now a head teacher is that um i want every child to know that they can succeed and i want us all to do everything that we can to allow them to do that and making the adjustments so they can is so so important you definitely see children who feel it is that they, they expect they're going to fail and the easiest way to fail is to not take part. Yeah, absolutely. It's just to exit absolutely. from it. And whether that be 
through disruptive behavior yeah. and they know they'll be removed yeah. from the situation yeah. or being a class clown yeah. so they you know they don't have yeah. to read the paragraph I did well for them <laughs> but, but you, you do because if, if you can't succeed in one area you, you make your own rules don't you and you're successful in another one or you know like you're successful in messing around or what, whatever mm-hmm. it is but I think that's human nature and I see it so the younger children in year one one and two I, I will see them keep working and working and when they get to year three I, I think some of those children realise actually they are finding it difficult and it's not a nice place to be you know like it really mm. isn't if you find it difficult so what we have to do is ensure that they don't find it difficult and, and what's interesting at the moment we're doing a lot of work on adaptive teaching which I'm, I'm loving and it's a case of ensuring that our children of quality first teaching caters for those children in class you know so they receive mm-hmm. the support and the lesson allows them to succeed because um, the other thing that I don't want is those children struggling through every maths and English lesson and then I think you know what I'm going to say and then coming out of lessons in the afternoon to do it more interventions on maths and English mm-hmm. so uh, the work that we're doing on the moment around adapting our lessons so that they receive the absolute best quality first teaching and succeed then and then enjoy the maths and English lesson sorry and then enjoy the lessons in the afternoon is so much more important so I'm excited about that at the moment great that it's lovely to hear you talk about I've identified a problem and then here's our solution and we'll hear more about the adaptive teaching uh, Mm. as we go on an example I hear quite a lot at the moment um especially from my role going into schools, people talk to me about, okay, what about our GDS children? What about those high flyers? What can we do for them? And I see this behavior that we're talking about mirrored in the greater depth children sometimes that we want to give them opportunities to get stuck. And they really often, they don't like that because school has been easy for them. Yeah. And they've been able to answer all the questions. They've been able to understand everything. Then they get put in these challenging situations and then you see the behaviors that you might see in in children who don't find things as easy so yeah. it makes me think what's w- there is usually a trigger and i've heard uh, behavior specialists and pastoral staff talk about there's always a trigger and you've just got to find what that trigger is and maybe like you say the trigger is i don't find this easy i'm i'm nervous inside i'm scared about having to read a paragraph or having to do this question because i can't do it mm. Do you identify triggers at school and try and, and work around those, or how do yeah, you manage so, it? Yeah, um, so I think one of the things that you referred to with the GDS children, particularly, um, if you start primary school and you find it easy, you know, then you're more likely to try harder and develop better learning behaviours, aren't you? So mm-hmm. the, the one approach is that you're, you're more likely to do well. So every lesson that you're in, you're, you're enjoying it, you're succeeding, so you're um succeeding um leads to motivation you know it really does so the more the better you are at something the harder you're going to try but then they, they've those children might not have struggled as much and you will come to a stage in your education or your career where you will find it difficult and i think if you never experienced that growing up then you're going to find it quite hard i think they call them brittle brilliance you know like mm. whereas they, they hit a point where it's very 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 hard for them so I think um, talking to children about how they learn, uh, creating opportunities for them to uh, to struggle is a good thing. You know, the learning pit where children go in and they find something difficult, I yeah. think that's quite important. But one of the things that we've focused on recently or over the last few years is we might put those challenges in place um, and just expect the children, you know, like to work out why we're doing it. So mm. now, now at the school, we spend a lot more time explaining the why you know like making it explicit in that 
you are doing this task, you are meant to find it difficult. Uh, the reason you're going to find it difficult is that you will learn to overcome problems. So, you know, like not just the knowledge they're getting from it, but actually the learning behavior. So making things explicit and not the children not just um, try to work it out for themselves of what we're trying to get across. I think So that linking into the metacognition and yeah, that absolutely. kind of thinking about thinking. So yeah, yeah, aware. yeah that, that's huge. So um, well, you'll know from the EF that metacognition makes the biggest difference to children as learners. Um, but again, those children that find things easy will, will naturally have good metacognition, but mm. other children we have to teach it to. So yeah, we spend a lot of time talking to the children about metacognition, explaining why they're doing something, what success looks like, not just within knowledge, but in metacognition. Something um, I read a long time ago was about lessons having more than a learning objective, you know, so that's what I want the lessons in our school. So you might be learning multiplication, but equally you might be learning resilience or you might be learning to collaborate or you might be learning to work independently. So that, that message is constantly reinforced to the children and we can see that the difference that's making to them as learners you know like yeah it's fantastic if we come back to your time at school mm -hmm. just for a minute um so at what point did you get a, a diagnosis of dyslexia and how did that change your journey through education uh, yeah really good question um so um i didn't um so i didn't at primary school and i didn't at high school um and um i left high school with a couple of GCSEs and started working as a joiner the next week um, and it's, it's a bit of a long way to get to your answer but I will get to it <laughs> so um, th I started work as a joiner and then um, from there um, I enjoyed working as a joiner you know like I enjoyed I, I used to fit bedrooms and kitchens and at, at the end of the day I'd made something you know and the person that I'd made it for was you know like happy with it you know yeah. and that, that was that was a nice feeling um, but it was a family business and I remember thinking actually I might need to know a little bit about um, business so I went back to night school um, and I did a GCSE in business studies and then um, then I did um, an A level in business studies as well and um, at night school and it, it was I enjoyed I enjoyed the learning um, but then going, going back to your question then I decided to do um, a degree whilst working as a joiner at the same time as well um, and I couldn't do it you know I, I couldn't do I couldn't do the writing um, and I couldn't do the reading um, and one of the lecturers there, you know, like spoke to me about it and I had to hand in a piece of writing and she said, you can't write, can you? And I said, I said no, because like um, before if I had to hand it in, you know, like my mum would check it for me or, mm -hmm. you know, like and change it around. And I, I had to do a piece of writing in the class and she said, you can't write. And I said, no. Um, and she said, do you know why? And I, and I said, no. And she went, you know, like she said, well, why don't we see if you can do this dyslexia test? And she did it. Um, and I went away to, um, I don't know where I went, I went to a university and you know, like they did the test and it was all around reading and remembering numbers and uh, I couldn't do any of it, but I couldn't not do it a little bit. You know, I had no idea, you know, yeah. like someone would say the numbers back and I couldn't do it. And that was the reason, um, basically that I'd switched off education, you know, and found, and found it so hard. So a lot of work I've had to do a lot of work from there to learn those skills that I need to know in order to do my job and be successful in life um, I wish I'd started learning that at six or seven and eight rather than at 23 24 you know and, and again going back to the point I make you know like I don't want children to go through the experience that I have and, and only work out that they can do things when they're older when actually mm -hmm. they can do things when they're younger as long as we help them
So yeah, so it was, it, yeah, I was I was an adult when I got diagnosed. I did go to uni, so uh, I worked um, I worked as a joiner um, and carried on working. Um, but a university course, I think you can combine the two. So um, I did a degree in uh, business studies, and I thought that that's what I wanted to do uh, and go on and be. Uh, a successful um in I, I'm interested in marketing like I say uh, I like working out what people want to know you know and then supplying and supplying it for them um and that's what I thought my career would be and then I went um I got a job at a, an internet and marketing agency so um my university lecturer um he said look you've done you've done well on this course I know someone who wants some uh, someone to go and work for them and he got me the job which was great and I remember going there and um I couldn't do it you know, like uh, they said, oh, can you write this report or can you write this um, document for the newspaper, a PR release? And I couldn't do it because all my life, you know, I had someone to check things for me, mm. you know, like so a friend at uni would read through my assignments. But when you grow up in the real world, um, your weaknesses are exposed, you know, and I couldn't do it. And I remember going there and I was thinking, whoa, I've put all this effort in and actually I can't do it. And that that was a really bad point for me. Um, so we, um, me and a group of friends, uh, a couple of them were backpacking and they were going to Australia um, and the rest of us were out on a night out in Fallowfield and we were saying, what should we do for Christmas and New Year? And we all decided to go to Australia for Christmas and New Year and there was about 20 of us went to Bondi. Wow. M amazing experience, amazing experience. And then when it came to going back, uh, I didn't go back. <laughs> uh, so the rest, most of them went back from the holiday and I, I think I stayed in Australia for a year and a half. Um, I didn't really know where I was up to as well, so I'd put all that effort in and then actually um, I didn't, I couldn't do the job that I'd set out to do, you know, which um, I haven't really spoke about before, to be honest. Um, that's a bit, I, I guess I miss out on my story usually, but I couldn't, you know, like, so even if you can do well in a degree, you do need to still know the basics and, and it will be exposed. So uh, that's when, yeah, I stayed in Australia for a year and a half and then still didn't want to come home so uh, <laughs> or grow up. But, so um, I got a flight over to Bali. Um, and then from there, um, I traveled around Asia for about nine months. And, and during that period of time, that's where I decided that I wanted to teach. Um, so um, I went to Cambodia um, and this was about uh, 2000 and when I went to Cambodia I, I went to these temples around Angkor Wat which are absolutely stunning temples um, and what I noticed when I was there is you know like some of the children that could speak English you know like they could make money from tourism and they, they could do quite well but there's a lot of poverty you know like there certainly was there in that country as, as well so I, I saw this and I saw the difference between people um, and then I was staying in a, a little hut near the river and I was um, playing with the children in the river in the day. Um, we were jumping off the tree into the river, which was a fun day and a really nice thing to do. But then they asked me to go to their school. So I went to their school and I taught, um, I just spoke to them in English. They, they spoke to me in English and uh, it was a really nice thing to do. Um, so I went back the next day, you know, and I, I taught another lesson the next day. And then um, I remember thinking, I was thinking, this, this could be a great thing to do. And I, I thought that, 
that if I could work in a school such as this one and teach these children English, then they can create a better future for themselves. You know, it's something that can make a huge difference to them. Um, and that I decided, yeah, that, that's what I want to do. I want to come back to um, Cambodia, you know, and work at a school. And I had a, I had a big crap. I'm a, I'm a bit of a dreamer, I will admit to that. I had a big plan. I was thinking, if I come back to Cambodia, I could set up a school and uh, at this school, I could teach the children English, and then the ones, that, and then they could link to tourism, and then they could take children, take people around the temples, and that's what it could look like. And you know, like they said, they could get a job and then get a better future. And I was thinking, that's a great idea. Uh, I still had my uh, barriers around reading and um, spelling, um, and I went to a market stall in Cambodia and I bought a grammar book and I bought um, a spelling book, and then for the rest of the time that I travelled. Um, every day I read this grammar book and I read this spelling book and I wrote down all the words that I couldn't spell and I tried to teach myself to uh, spell over that period of time. And I'll t So going back, this is uh, a bit weird, but I'll do it. So <laughs> some words are EI rather than IE. Yeah. And I remember seeing which ones they were and uh, there was um, I collected them all down and it was the conceited foreigner who practised deceit gazed at the ceiling and seized the receipt and the counterfeit caffeine and protein. And I made this up and, and I learned them all. And that's 20 years ago and, and I learned them all. And then I, I just wrote down and I wrote little ways of learning all the spellings. But actually now thinking about it, it wasn't that I learned the spellings. It's going back to what you were saying about metacognition. I learned how to learn and I learned that I wanted to learn. You know, so the reason I couldn't spell and I really couldn't spell um, is because I'd never tried. You know, so it's similar to reading, you know, we, we mm -hmm. say about it, it's not, I couldn't read. It's because I didn't try hard enough to read and dyslexia really isn't an excuse for not being able to read and not being able to spell. It's because I stopped after that. So I, I taught myself all of these things as I traveled. I read every day, uh, I learned spell, I read these grammar books and I traveled around and I traveled probably for another um, five months and did it every single day. And then um, I came back and I went to voluntary services overseas um, and I thought, and I went to them and I explained what I wanted. And I said, I want to go to Cambodia and do these things. And they said, well, you can't actually do that. But, you know, like um, we have um, schools all over the world where, you know, like we train people uh, and they go into the schools and they had um, a school in rural China, a teacher training college. And they were talking about it there and, and I applied for that job. And what my job was, was going to rural China, a beautiful place called Xingyi. And I worked with all the trainee teachers in the area and I taught them to improve their spoken English um, because they, they were all, they'd learned English, but in a way that was all grammar based and textbook based without speaking. So I taught them the... Uh, the spoken English. Um, the Stockport dialect. Yeah, yeah, that is the other thing. There'll be <laughs> lots of people with really bad accents the in, local in, in that area. <laughs> yeah, and, and I did that for two years. And then I remember thinking uh, at the end, they would VSO say, well, you go back now and then someone else goes to do it. And um, I think part of my personality is I want to solve problems and I want, I want things to be better. So again, I spoke to VSO and said, what about if I stay another year and I teach the teachers the things that I can do with regards to teaching methods? 
um, and I, I met with them and we had this conversation and we agreed that I'd stay another year and I taught and, and it's not groundbreaking stuff that I taught them but we just talk about having like um, doing things in paired work and modeling the language so the things that I did as a, a language teacher I taught the teachers at the university to do and then they put teaching methods in and then other other schools uh, that VSO other teacher training colleges at VSO do the same now you know like so wow. that that that's uh, something I'm quite proud of you know um, and then from there yeah I knew I wanted to be a teacher for them that's when I came back and did my PGCE my, my job is now as a head teacher but I know um, in my current school you know there's 14 teachers and every one of them will do everything they can to inspire the children and you know like our will do more perhaps than was done for me I know um, Weatherspoon's uh, bar um, I heard something that the person who set it up, his teacher said, you're never going to be successful. His teacher was called Mr. Weatherspoon. So it was like, uh, I've done it despite you. Um, well. I'm, I'm not like that, you know, like I like <laughs> the story, but I'm, I'm not bitter about it, you know, like, yeah. uh, so it has no relevance what my experience was like, other than I want better for the children under my care at my school, you mm-hmm. know? So when we've spoken previously, every child is finishing my school as a reader. Um, you know, like that is, that is, something I'm absolutely passionate about, you know, and the, the finishing is a really strong reader. So reading will never be a barrier to any child's educational happiness that goes to, to, goes to our school, you know, like they, it absolutely won't. And um, they will sit through, you know, like uh, they will sit through their high school and they will be able to access all of that, um, all of that learning, you know, and hopefully enjoy it as well because they all finish as really strong readers and we will do absolutely everything that we can to ensure that's in place so as more specifically we have an extra teacher in reception that just focuses on um, speech and language and reading and I have a non-contact reading lead across the school as well you know to make sure it's the best it can possibly be Um, and I know um, our school now from in the last 10 years you know like um, the level that the children finish reading is, is pretty phenomenal to be honest you know, like, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really pleased with how it's going. That said, uh, everyone in our school knows that I want them to be better. You know, like so, um, yeah, we we they are good readers, but they will be even better readers. So those children coming through our school, you know, like in reception year one, year two, now will have a better experience than the ones that went through before because mm-hmm. we will continually get better and better and better. And reading will always be a, a focus, even though in as an individual, you know, like, I prefer maths and my training's all been in maths. But uh, I do think reading's the most important thing. That that can be a barrier, and that's a barrier we have to take away. So I, I feel like looking from the outside that you're the perfect person to facilitate that that reading journey because of your experiences. And I've I've got a little bit of a maths background, and I see lots of maths lessons. And often teachers will say to me, "I'm not very good at maths, yeah, yeah and yeah. I'm not confident teaching it." And my answer to that is always that often. Teachers who are less confident or struggled with maths themselves at school are some of the best teachers of maths but because they can understand the journey the child's going on, similar to yourself, that mm-hmm. you struggle with reading, and that's a huge impetus for you in school now to make that, that journey as smooth as possible um, for the children. So in your school, you've got a huge drive, but a head teacher can't do it all. Yeah. So who... How, who do you delegate to or who drives um, teaching and learning in your school? This, Yeah, this is um, a really good question and one I thought about a lot. So as, as a 
class teacher, you're responsible for your own class, you know, like no problem. As a, as a deputy, uh, I had a fantastic job as a deputy, you know, like my head teacher uh, trusted me completely to do the job and left me responsible for teaching and learning. Uh, I also worked for the NCTM, so my job was to support teaching and learning in my school and then go to other schools, you know, and help them develop maths. Absolutely amazing job and I loved it and I could see the impact that it had. Um, when I became a head teacher, uh, I didn't have an intention uh, to set out to become a head teacher, but um, I did become a head teacher at, at the school where I was a teacher. Um, and, and I had to work out what sort of head teacher I was going to be. So um, I thought about that well before I applied. And when I went to the interview, I said, you know, like I want to be a certain sort of head teacher. I want to be responsible for teaching and learning. I want to support the children. I want to be able to support uh, the teachers. So basically the job I did as a deputy I kind of moved a little bit to being a, being a head you know um, so the, the other aspects in order to do that I have to you know I have to trust people and delegate people so um, I I deliberately set out to not do things myself um, and if I, I figured if I could make everyone in my school or no not make if I could support everyone in my school being one or two percent better then that would have more impact than any head teacher could possibly could. So you hear about these super heads that go into schools, you know, and change things around. And I've got a lot of respect for them, but I'm certainly not one of them. You know, in my school, um, in the school where I work, um, everyone's pretty brilliant, you know, and, and actually most of them are better than I am, you know. So my job is to allow them to be great you know, and, and to provide them with the support. So that's what I do now, which is very different, you know, than the role I had as a as a deputy where I led things, but now, um, no, they lead things. So today at the moment, there's a TRG, which we got from the NCTM teacher research growing on. So they're happening maths, but I'm not leading it. I'd love to be leading it, mm -hmm. but they're doing it and that's empowering them to do it. So yeah, you, ha you I think you have to step back and facilitate really, which, um, doesn't naturally come to me I prefer to do but um, over the years I have learned to do that and I think that's better for the people you work with isn't it than mm. doing it all yourself can you tell us a little bit more about that that process and I imagine there's a few sides to this there's probably a, a staff well-being side where you're thinking about how to motivate staff there's a, a, a maybe a subject knowledge side there's maybe a pedagogical side uh, how do you allow your staff to be so brilliant what what do you put in place um, that, that that's probably you probably just describe my job you know like my job <laughs> title in what in, in at least it probably doesn't say it on a piece of paper but how I see it you know like how do I facilitate them doing it and the first thing I, I spoke a lot about how we care for the children the same I have to care for the staff and make sure that they're okay um, so as an example the first one you talked about was well-being so um, we have like a, a well-being fund for the staff so if any staff needs they can have a free breakfast free lunch you know like so if you went to Maslow those basic needs you know are taken care of um, I think the cost of living probably is affecting a lot of our staff so we overcame not overcame we helped them with that problem um, do they have to do anything to receive the breakfast lunch do they have it no, with the children or no 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 you like when we we get we got lots of like free bagels and free, mm. um, you know like things so that it doesn't matter who you're looking after as long as you're looking after people doesn't it so staff can get them as well and then uh, we have a cupboard at school you know where we put like all food so 
different people put food in there different people take food out of there it's just a nice way you know like for it to be um but then the the area um so yeah you've got to look after people and also that feeling of care they know they know they're looked after you know like with and and it's not just me it's it's everybody so interestingly um i went to see one of our ects you know and the first thing that they do you know like um if i ask how they are you know like they'll ask how i am you know so it's like um it's certainly not me it's the whole school it's a it's a culture thing of looking after each other one of the teachers did some training a few years ago on you know, asking twice, how if I said, how are you doing? You're going to say, fine. Yep. You know, if I asked you twice, you might tell me how you're really doing. Mm-hmm. You'd probably say nervous. <laughs> um, but um, that's what happens. People do ask twice, you know, and they do look out for each other. So the first and foremost is like that feeling of well-being. But um, I think your question was, how do we develop staff? Um, Just a supplementary question on, on the well-being side of it. I, I've seen that be developed sometimes with teaching staff and leaders have a view of how can I empower my teaching staff will do a well-being day yeah and it it doesn't always have the required um, impact and I've also seen almost kind of cringeworthy moments where I remember a a guy coming in and he was a trust teaching and learning person and he said oh the the staff been doing great I've brought some cakes for the teachers yeah yeah yeah. and there were TAs in the room and they heard him say these cakes are for the teachers and that just created an instant divide yeah and it was awful to get around so your your food cupboard i imagine everybody can put in and everybody can take out yeah how have you created a staff team where you don't have clicks or divides um everyone's there for the same reason aren't they you know like to to look after um to look after the children Uh, and i know this is going to sound cringy but on my on my first um on my first inset day you know like um I united the job um, and I was saying, look, we are all here for this, the same reason. It's to create, um, to change children's lives. We, we actually do change children's lives. And, and I said, we are professional life changers, you know, like um, that we, we make children's lives better, but a teacher and a teaching assistant are doing exactly the same job. You know, like we, we, we do it in a slightly different way, but they're both doing exactly the same job. So there's no difference between the two. You know, so that that's that's really important, and that that's what you have to emphasise. And, and equally, if if you're supporting the teachers through um, professional development, you have to support the teaching assistants through it as well. You know, like th- there isn't a difference, just a job title, and you can take that away. You you, you mentioned before, like the, the one-off things. You know, like um, if if a teacher's or a teaching assistant's uh, child's going to see in a show then they are going seeing that show, you know, like, uh, and they're in the show or the sports day, they're doing those things. That's that's uh, an absolute must. And I would do the same. I'd go and see my girls, you know, in, in that sort of thing. But the the well-being, bringing someone in and they all, like, singing and dancing sort of thing, no. So there's, there's a well-worn straight uh, phrase, isn't there, that culture eats strategy, you know, and, and actually if what you say doesn't align with the culture of your school, you know, you can say you do this for well-being or we'll put this in place, but if it doesn't align with the culture, it means nothing, and actually it makes it worse, you know. So you genuinely have to look after each other and care, and every action that you do has to match that, you know, so, so that's really important. So as ambitious as I am for... Th- the school, the children and the staff. And, and I, we do push hard and we do work very, very hard. It's all done for the right reasons, which are in, improving the education and care for the children. So um, I'm a, a TA in your school and uh, my son's in his nativity. I just pop along to the office and say, 
my son's in the nativity yeah, on the yeah, 12th of December and yeah, you say well, take the morning yeah yeah and when, and when they come back I want to know about the nativity as mm. well you know yeah that's 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 the way it should be you know and, and and also that that's really really important you know how do you cover that let's uh, talk logistics yeah um we are we are quite fortunate we're a, we're a large school you know um we, we made um, we made some decisions at the start, which which allowed us to be a financially secure school. So we, we didn't have an after school club, for example, um, and the, our children were going to lots of different after school clubs. Um, I didn't like the idea of them all leaving, you know, on, on cold nights. So we set up a, an after school club, which um, is brilliant. You know, the, the club matches our school values. It's it's within our school that generates a revenue. You know. Um, so that that will pay for more teaching assistance, you know, so we, we do generate a revenue that way. The work that we do for the NCTM generates a revenue. We're an EEF research school as well. So all of those things are decisions that have been made not just to support other schools, but to support our children as well. So, um, yeah, we, we can cover it. Uh, I like teaching as well, you know, like <laughs> I came into the job to be a teacher. So if someone's going out, you know, like I'm delighted to teach, you know, so I, yeah, I, I, I teach most weeks as well. What's your supply budget look like? We've, we've never used a supply teacher, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, we haven't used a supply t uh, teacher since I've been head teacher. We, um, we, I think, yeah, I think, well, I think I can say this, referring back to teaching assistants, um, when they, we, ask, we ask them to cover classes, they know the children, they're all very highly skilled. Um, but when, when we do it, we pay them double time to do it, which... Um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to do, you know, like, um, but um, <laughs> I think that's an important thing, you know, um, I, I will do what I think's right. And if someone makes me stop, I'd stop. But so our teaching assistants would get the same salary as um, a supply teacher, you know, for doing that day, but they would do, you know, like they would do a better job. So again, if you're a teaching assistant, aren't well enough paid, but mm. that gives them an opportunity to receive more money. So it's better for the teaching assistants. It's better for the children in our, in our school and it, it probably is better for our school budget as well. So the teaching assistance is short term cover, you know, like if, it, if it's a day. So I have a teacher who is sick today, a teaching assistant is covering it. She is amazing. She will be doing a fantastic job and she will be rewarded financially for, you know, for doing it. And we'd also move another teaching assistant into that class to support the teaching assistant rather than the, rather than the teacher. But if it's long-term absence, then um, I think I think the insurance worked out around twenty thousand pound, you know, for to cover. Um, so we cancelled the insurance and employed another teacher, so that that teacher, if someone's long-term uh, sick, will cover that class. But they're in every other day, you know, to to do other things. So when I say I have a non-contact uh, reading lead. I do as long as everyone's healthy <laughs> you know like uh, and but if I have a long-term sick or if someone was to leave at Christmas and I couldn't bring in someone that I thought matched the values and the quality of the teachers at our school then I, my, my reading lead then becomes a teacher. I, I've been really lucky that I've received some training with the NCTM um, and I, I believe you've had some too. How did China look the second time you went Okay, so yeah, like like, like you, um, I, I was very fortunate that I was a master lead for the NCTM, and even more fortunate that they allowed me to go to Shanghai and see their teaching, um, which was you know, like really pivotal in my career and made me look at things in very different ways. So by the time I was going there, 
Um, I knew that I was going to be a head teacher when I came back. So um, I didn't just look at the maths. I, I looked at the pedagogy and going to that problem solving. You're like, what are they doing that's making them so successful? And um, their teachers were phenomenal. You know, like the lessons were phenomenal. But it wasn't that their teachers were any more passionate or any more or tried any harder. The, the thing that I noticed was the whole culture was different. That they were the system that they had was designed to make the teachers the best that they could be and the big thing that they had was time so our teachers here will teach nine till quarter past three and it'll go one lesson straight into another mm. and 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 it's very much get that done then on the next one then then you're marking your books and putting those things in place and then you repeat that the next day when i was in shanghai they they would teach a lesson then the teachers would all uh, get together discuss that lesson how could they make that lesson better developing the lesson for the next time. So it was a real level of reflection and that the biggest ingredients that they had that we didn't have was time. So um, that's one of the things that, that's the main thing that I took back from there, that our teachers can be every bit as good as them if we create the time for them to do that. So um, that's one of the things that I've really focused on. So that, um, when uh, teachers, when I did my NCTM work from there, I put the training in in the morning and then said, in the afternoon take the time to apply it so the last thing you want to do is go on a training course in the morning and then run back and teach a different lesson not linked to it in the afternoon because you lose it so creating that time in my own school if someone goes out then i'll always allow then i'll always create an opportunity for them to have follow-up time to reflect on it to apply it and every teacher in the school last week went to observe our maths lead teach that lesson and now they've all gone off into groups to um focus on an area of improving their own pedagogy but i can't expect people to do that after school or at the weekend so we create a lot of time on thursdays for people to do that and the impact of the children not having their class teacher on a thursday sometimes nah because you know like um the drama that they do is amazing the science that they do is amazing and the pe that they do is amazing but actually no teacher's that good that if they're not there for one day, the children suffer as long as that teacher comes back and delivers better lessons as a result. So creating time for people is one of the things that I really focus on and I think is probably the thing that makes the biggest difference to their ability to teach, their children's ability to learn. And I also think it's really good for well-being, not as in, as in they're doing a better job, you know, mm. they're, they're not stressed. Just coming to the, the budget side of that, because we're buying in PE, people from outside to do PE, to do mm. science and to do drama. We talked about, we created a little bit of revenue with after school clubs and things like that. Is there anything else that allows you to um, have a bigger budget in school to provide these opportunities? Um, the, the easiest way I can describe it is, that every if, is not considering the money as the school's money is considering the money as the children's money you know like so it's probably a simplified version but anything that's not having a direct impact on children then that's secondary you know like so we, we cut we, we don't have the most beautiful building you know like um we you know like i said the staff rooms like a little bit run down you know like but the things that have an impact on children they're the things that we we focused on you know um so yeah, it, it, it's where you spend your money. And so there's ways of generating a revenue, which we've certainly done, and there's ways of saving, you know, and, and thinking, okay, so for every pound that I have, that's got to have the most impact on the children and having that mindset um, is, is, yeah, is really important. As a head teacher and controlling budgets, what causes you the biggest headache 
is it things like teachers' pay increases that are done um, to you without your decisions? Yeah, this, this is a, this is a real dilemma. So, um, and the easiest way for me to put it is the teaching assistants. So, um, teaching assistants, I've said how much I think of them. Um, hugely underpaid, mm-hmm. um, and also they, they get paid pro rata, which I, again I think is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think they should be paid. You know, like all, all you know, like all the time. Um, that that's a different conversation, but I, I really do. You know, like they, they do a fantastic job, and the, the salary doesn't reflect that. So when they got their two almost two thousand pay rise, you know, I absolutely deserve it. I'm delighted for them, but then that's fifty thousand pound out of the school budget. You know, and that isn't put in. You know, like so. Therefore, yeah, finances are a problem, and um, I know at the moment it's quite a topical issue. But so, say for example. Um, as, as an individual, if I get a 5% pay rise uh, as a head teacher, uh, my instant thought is I, not that I have more disposable income for me as, a, as an individual, it's mm-hmm. that is going to cause a problem for my school, you know, and uh, that 5% that I will receive, that's coming out of what the children, like um, mm-hmm. the resources for them. So it, it's a really, it's a real dilemma in that something that could personally benefit um, an individual damages the potential opportunities for children and mm. yeah I find that very difficult that is a real challenge that I face I was advised by a, a CEO that I was working with to become an Ofsted inspector yeah. uh, just as some professional development for myself yeah. and I went and spoke to an Ofsted inspector that, that I know and they said just be careful Liam because sometimes your moral compass is challenged yeah. and I wondered about being a head teacher if sometimes you you're challenged morally is there um a compromise between values and necessity um the Ofsted question is a good question so um we were Ofsted at the year before I became a head teacher and then we were Ofsted at the year I became a head teacher so we had two in 18 months um and I think I was a little bit naive, you know, like my, my values are very strong to me, you know, and, and they're the values of the school. So every decision that we make is based on our school values, which uh, Care Aspire achieve every decision, who we employ, what our curriculum looks like. Um, every every decision we make, every leadership meeting refers back to these values. Um, and it doesn't, so maybe I was a little bit naive in that, these hoops you have to jump through for Ofsted, but um, I always set myself like um, my own personal belief that, that I'm not doing that, you know, like, um, so it doesn't, it didn't actually bother me what Ofsted said, um, because that's one day, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. like it's one day in a couple of years, whereas um, the children are there every day. So um, we did everything that we could for the children, you know, and put that in place. Um, we were actually very f- fortunate that when the inspector came in, he, he looked around our school um, and his values matched our values. He was very much, you know, I think Ofsted come under a lot of criticism, but he was very much about the children and very much about teaching and learning. Um, and he, he couldn't have been more complimentary, to be honest, you know, like about the school and that, that was like a very proud thing. But um, it, it was good for us because it, it matched our values and what they said was, was very pleasing. And the pre- this was important as well. And the praise that he get, gave in the report that he provided us, um, every single one of our school, you know, like parents, children, teachers could see how they'd impacted on that. So it, it was nice to receive that recognition. From what I can see on your website, 
almost everything you do is about developing your staff and you have a really research-based approach. Why do you have this approach? Um, yeah, we have, we have it for, for multiple reasons. So um, when, when it comes down to it, you know, like the quality first teaching, which is make, makes the biggest difference, isn't it? So the higher quality of every lesson that we can deliver, the more impact that it's going to have on, on children. So I think when I first started teaching, there was a lot of opinion, you know, like um, people doing what they believed was best. And that's obviously got to range, hasn't it, in the, in the standards. So I read a book uh, a long time ago, Hattie, and Hattie's research, and it was looking that some things have a greater impact than others. And that really stuck with me. And that's what first made me start thinking about metacognition. Um, from there, I attended some... EF training and I found that really interesting that actually there was evidence to show that some things worked more than others um, so um, and it was around the time where it was showing that teaching assistants cost a lot of money but have little impact mm. so um, I spent a year developing our teaching assistants you know like developing all their skills um, improving their knowledge uh, and at the end of the year it had very little impact oh wow yeah hardly any impact at all um, and, and the reason was, wasn't that the knowledge, I'd got the knowledge, but I didn't do a good job of implementing it. So the following year, I actually worked with the EEF and some of their, their um, EEF t uh, experts that they worked with us and they did it across Stockport. And it was all about the implementation. And, and the bit that I'd missed is actually, it's not the teaching assistants, it's the leader of the teaching assistants and their support that they'd got in place. So I did the project again, but did it much better. And we focused on the leader, leadership and the implementation, and that had a huge impact on our teaching assistants. And interestingly, that came, one of the key things that came back from that was time as well. So every day we have feed forward feedback where we pay the teaching assistants to stay at the end of the day. So they're involved in the lesson. So previously teaching assistants that I'd had, you know, they used to have to guess what I was talking about because they had no idea of the lesson, but now they're involved in the feedback and what that lesson looks like. So that, yeah, that had a huge impact, which led to a more research focused approach across the school and less of an opinion one. Um, and then as we got better at that, our results got better. Um, and we applied to be an associate research school for the EF and we were very proud that we got that position. Uh, and that allows us to support um, schools across our area and teachers across that area. So if you think, if you come into education to help children, now originally it was just 30, then it was a school, but actually now we can support thousands of uh, children by being a, a research school. And then um, now we've been awarded the position of full research school, which we start in September as well, which is a real opportunity to develop our school, but much more, uh, help many more schools and children and teachers as well. Do you, most schools have five inset days yeah, and they're paced however schools decide throughout the year. Do you have a slightly different approach? Yeah, we, we, we did this year. It works really well and, and it links CPD and wellbeing. So um, we have five weeks off in the summer. You know, it's a long time. So we all came back a day early, um, which allowed us to put an inset day the first day of every half term. So if you've got six half terms, we could put one. So we didn't count the first one as an official inset day. Um, so that means that every half term we start with a real clear focus of what we want to do and then the insets for that half term you know, like Wednesday ones you refer to example they follow on it and build on it but then the other thing it means that um, every teacher and every teaching assistant can take a day to suit them over the course of the year so yeah that's really important and goes back to that time and well-being but and again to that problem solving so it links CPD it links well-being so that, yeah that's worked well this year.
what do the staff use their day off for? A lot of yeah, a lot of them put it in the week before Christmas and went Christmas <laughs> shopping because we, we didn't break up till the twenty third. So a, a lot of them use that for, but they can use it for whatever they want. Um, I was in Egypt for mine, so yeah, it, it's, it's 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 all very good. And can you bank those and, and put them together, or do they have to be used within the year? Um, I don't mind what people do. You know, like uh, we also uh, we go to um, you know one of the adventure holidays. We go on one of them, but uh, I think it was two hundred and fifty pounds to go for the children to go in the week. But if we went at the weekend, it was one hundred and twenty. You know, like that's really important that mm. we want all our children to go. I'm very fortunate that I work with teachers that will do that. So. We take them to PGL and places like that at the weekend rather than in the week. And then teachers can have those days as well. And leading an outstanding school is a difficult job. Maybe people think as the head teacher of an outstanding school, you need to be the first person there every day and the last person to leave at night to sustain that outstanding status. Are you first there every day and and last to leave every night? Um, Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, So I think... um, I think over a period of time, um, I think my priorities, you know, I have very much have been about, you know, like the children at our school, and and I think that there has been periods of time where I've put those, you know, like the, my school and the children there and my colleagues there before, you know, like my own family, um, and that's something, you know, like if I could go back in time that. Uh, I do regret to some extent, you know, because it is very difficult to fit everything in. Um, so when I when I talk to my staff, you know, like I genuinely, you know, like will encourage them to do spend time with their family, that their families is, is the most important thing. And um, yeah, that that was a challenge for me. Maybe I, I learned that a little bit too late, but f- for them, you know, like um, if I've learned something, I, I can help them. So that that looking after your own family and looking after yourself is really important to me and I do speak to the staff a lot about that um, We and yeah we do work hard I might be first in and I might be first to leave sometimes but um, today I'm going picking my girls up at half four you know uh, because I don't want them in after school club till six so I'll get them at half four and we'll do something nice together and I don't think it's made me any worse of a head teacher for doing that, you know, and I don't think, and I think that's the same for everyone. So that, that work-life balance is really important. Thank you very much, Phil, for joining us today. It's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you. Um, and I really appreciate the, the time that you've given. And I think lots of people will appreciate that too. And I, I, I can't wait to hear what people think about the conversation. Thank you for asking me. It was, it, I've enjoyed it, Liam. I really have. It's, uh, it's been it's been interesting, you know. Uh, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, if 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 it is useful for people, then I'm delighted. If it helps anyone, so yeah, thank you. What challenges have you overcome? And how does it affect the way you teach? Let us know by emailing podcast at whiterosemass.com or on any of our social media channels. We read and reply to each one and would love to draw upon your thoughts in future episodes.